It's a good day. Anytime we get together to worship, to read God's word, have God speak to us. Today we're going to look at a passage from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. You can turn there, but it's going to be a while before we read it. Uh, I'm a fan of any time that we look at God's word, we look at God's word in context. And there are some chapters here in John that just kind of all belong together. So we're going to really focus mainly on verse 12 of John 8, but we're going to glance back through chapter 7 together. We're not going to read it. I'll just kind of walk through and give you some highlights. Uh, when we see chapter 7, we see that Jesus is in Galilee. He's there with his brothers. He didn't want to go to Judea because he knew that there were people in Judea who were going to try and kill him. His brothers suggested that he go to the temple for the Feast of the Tabernacles. He was a good Jew. That's what Jews did. Jesus listened to his brothers and he heard his brother say, you need to go to the temple for some exposure. You need to go and show them what you can do. You need the big crowd. Show them how powerful you are. His brothers eventually did get it, by the way. <laughs> but it's after the resurrection. Here, they're just trying to get him in the limelight. Jesus says, I don't think I'm going to the Feast of the Temples. His brothers say, well, we're going. And they leave. And then Jesus changes his mind and goes to the temple. John tells us that while they were at the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles, that people were already beginning to talk about Jesus. Some thought he was the real deal. Some thought he was possessed by a demon. Halfway through the feast of the festival, Jesus arrives and he begins preaching. The people are amazed at how such an uneducated man can teach with such authority and power. Jesus tells them that he's not there on his behalf. He's just being obedient to the Father. And he mentions that there are those of you who are trying to kill me. Some of them got angry. Some of them tried to grab him. But the text said they couldn't even lay a hand on him. They would eventually arrest him and kill him, but not today because it's not time. God set the time and a bunch of religious wannabes were not going to get in the way. Since they couldn't kill him, since they couldn't even lay a hand on him, they went to the temple police and said, would you go and arrest him? So now it's the last day of the feast Jesus declares to those listening, if any of you is thirsty, come to me for a drink. The temple, temple police get there and they're, they're going to arrest him, but they listen. They hear him speak and they realize that no one in the temple had ever taught with such power, with such authority. So when the religious leader said, why didn't you arrest him? They said, we were blown away by what he had to say. At the end of chapter seven, the religious leaders are together and they accused Nicodemus uh, for being on the side of Jesus. Nicodemus said, you shouldn't condemn a man without a trial. Uh, and they said, well, since you and he are both from Galilee, uh, we know what's going on here because everybody knows no prophet could come from Galilee. So we get to John 8, and John 8 continues by saying that everyone went home. Everyone, that is, but Jesus. Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus went to the mountain to pray. So we pick up verse 2, the dawn of the first day after the festival. When we pick up here, it's the story of a woman, according to the Bible, caught in the very act of adultery, who's dragged through town, tossed in the temple, and the religious leaders say to Jesus, the Bible says we should stone her. Now, I taught on this last year on a Wednesday night, and the title was Naked and Afraid. 
too much for a Sunday morning, right? (laughs) The religious leaders were planning a trap for Jesus. They wanted Jesus to make a mistake. They challenged him concerning the carrying out of the law. They said, the Bible says, uh, the law says that we should stone her. They even took some liberty with the interpretation of the law just to push Jesus into doing something he shouldn't have done. They actually challenged Jesus to stone her, have her stoned, or break the law. You remember the story. It's where Jesus looks at the woman caught in adultery, and he bends down on the temple floor, and he begins to write in the dust. And when he looks up, we know that the accusers began to slip away. Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she said, there's no one here but you. And Jesus said, well, I forgive you. There are those who are smarter than me who look at this passage and the placement of where it is in John, and they say that in this passage, Jesus is illuminating grace. How about that? It's really cool. I wish I'd seen it first. So the passage takes place near the temple, near the treasury, in the court of women. There are a couple of things that people did when it came to the temple. They gave money as part of their worship was giving money. In the courtyard of the temple, there were 13 receptacles around the entire area, 13 of them. They were kind of like our offering boxes. We only have 12. We used to have 13. One was in the annex, but nobody ever used it, so I think we got rid of it. But you can place your tithe, your offering in the offering boxes. There are two in this room. They're in the back on the walls. I say that because every week somebody says, Where are these offering boxes? We expect them to look like a box. And they are. They're just recessed into the wall. You can put your offering in at any time you're here. They're checked twice a week. Um, And today, we will take an offering up, which means we'll pass the plate. We do that on the first service. So now that you're thoroughly confused, we'll keep going. Jesus is located in the courtyard of the court of women. There was a outside courtyard, the court of Gentiles, where anybody could come and go. But once you left the court of Gentiles, you either had to be a Jew or a duly processed proselyte man or woman. And then you would go up some stairs and you would enter the court of women. From here, women can go no further. They couldn't go beyond this court. They couldn't go into the court of Israel. They couldn't go to the court of priests. So naturally, they put all the places to give an offering where both men and women could go. In our house, Patty takes care of that. We use the the church app, and um, I get a reminder that it happened. So they wanted to make sure, because Jewish men were probably a lot like us, that the women would make sure that the offering got paid. You know this place because it's the picture of the Bible where the widow gave her two coins, the widow's mite. It was in this same place. Around the porch of this massive court of the women, there could be tens of thousands of people during the Feast of the Tabernacles because they came from everywhere. The 13 allocated places to give money. From this point on, I'll call them offering boxes. You'll know what I'm talking about, right? So at this point, the offering boxes, historians tell us they were trumpet-shaped. So they had a, a, a wider mouth, and you would drop the money in, and it would funnel down into a container. Um, they were very specific as far as their purpose. Uh, offering boxes one and two were designed for the half-shekel temple tax that everyone had to pay. Now, we don't do that here. Maybe not a bad idea. When you walk in the door, you pay a little admission fee. Uh, offering boxes three and four for men, women to put money in for the two pigeons that they needed to purify themselves from childbearing. Offering box five 
is where the money went to purchase wood for the fire for the altar. Offering box six was for the incense at the altar. So offering box five and six had to do with sacrifices. Offering box seven was designed to the receptacle to keep the golden vessels of the temple. Uh, they had to have money to replace them if they needed. They have someone to clean them. Then you have offering boxes eight through 13, general fund for everything else. So this is where Jesus is. He's at the court of the women. It's a place where the treasury is. It would be the most packed court in the temple. So keep that in mind. A teaser for this passage is, is our key verse. Now, I'm going to read the key verse before we get to the scripture. Verse 12 says, he spoke to them again as he had been speaking. I'm the light of the world, he said. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Notice he didn't say, I am a light in the world. Any rabbi, any teacher could claim that they are a light. I'm a light in a dark place. He didn't say, I am a light in Jerusalem. He didn't say, I am a light in Judea. He didn't break into Elton John's Candle in the Wind. Pretty song, not appropriate. He didn't. He did say, I am the light. I am the light of the world. The light is exclusive. It's all-encompassing. More importantly, it's a direct claim that he is the Messiah. And when they heard it, they knew it. When the Feast of Tabernacles began, there were these candelabras that were set up all through the court of women. Historians say that they literally filled the court of women with the capability of light. Every night they would go around, they would light these large candles and they would burn all night. It was actually called by the Jews, the illumination of the temple. This happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Booths. During this week, the Jews were supposed to rig a small booth that they would stay in for a week to remember, to remember being homeless and how God provided for them during the 40 years of wandering. How did they know where to go when they were in the wilderness? Well, they were led by light. There was a pillar of fire at night and a lighted cloud in the daytime. It was the light that led them in the wilderness to the promised land. And to commemorate that, they had the illumination of the temple. And they lit all these candles and they let them burn all night. When we look at some writings from that day, the historians describe this illumination of the temple as you were coming across the desert and it was a stunning vision. It was a flashing diamond. It was a symbol of the pillar of fiery light and a cloud that led them in the wilderness. The Jews would remember the words of Isaiah because Isaiah said, I will be a light to the nations. I see Jesus standing there. Maybe he saw the light of the temple as he was going and coming from the mountain as he prayed the night before. We don't know the time, but it's possible. It's the day after the feast. The candles were dark and lifeless. And maybe he looks at those lifeless candles in the candelabras and he says, I'm the light of the world. I will never go out. If you follow me, your light will never go out for you. You will never walk in darkness, but you will always have the light of life. It's a profound moment for those who were listening that day. Jesus is saying, just as God provided light to lead you to the promised land, I am the light that will lead you to the kingdom. I will lead you to God, to heaven, to everlasting life. Jesus is saying, it's not just a light to be looked at. It's not a light just to be admired. It's a light to be followed. So follow me. 
So now we can read the scripture. Would you stand with me as we read together from God's word, John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this incredible passage that John gives us to give us a glimpse into some of the life of Jesus. And Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit will be the speaker. Father, I pray that your word will come alive through the power of the Holy Spirit that will bite us in our heart and that we will leave differently than we came today. Father, thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 8 verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, how are you appearing at your own, as your own witness? Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you had no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I'm the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who sent me. They ask him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke with these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one sees them because his time had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are, you are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I've heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father taught me. The one who sent me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. You may be seated. May God's blessings be on the reading of his word. While it's fresh in your ears, I want to point out the end of the text, the verse 30. Look at the response of many of the people in verse 30. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. It's good news because Jesus had said in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, literally that I am, you will die in your sins. So we have a picture here of people passing from death to the life, to the religious. He said, you will die in your sins. But they didn't have to die in their sins. They could have been forgiven. That's why Jesus came to the world. That's why he spoke these words in our text. And that's why we're looking at this today. I'm hoping, praying that for some of you this morning, the same thing will happen for you that happened to the people in verse 30, that many will believe in him. Notice it was Jesus' words that God used to bring about the faith. Jesus wasn't doing miracles at this point. Remember his brother said, go to the feast and do some miracles so a lot of people will believe in you. Jesus was just speaking. He was just teaching. 
the decision to believe in him was totally based on his words and the work of the Spirit. These are the same words we're examining today. The words is Jesus is the light of the world. Now, after Jesus breaks this revelation, there seems to be a detour. If you're just looking at the passage, you think, oh, there's a break here and Jesus is changing gears. The passage in verse 12 says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Again, it said Jesus had already been teaching. And then there's a break or a pause or a let it sink in for a minute moment. Then he seems to go off course. There's an objection from the religious leaders, but we've seen this before. Jesus starts in one direction. The religious leaders try to trap him up and he beautifully ends up teaching a powerful life lesson anyway. Here, he handles the detour in a way that really shines. Light, shine, stay with me. Jesus keeps the most important as the focus. He doesn't get mad when they condemn, when they attack him. What makes this look like a side trip is found in verses 13 through 29. It seems like Jesus is getting away from his I am the light of the world notes and switching to his my testimony and judgment are true because of my relationship with the Father notes. It's like he's changing topics. The word judgment that Jesus used is better rendered as the word condemn. Jesus says, you condemn me, but I don't condemn you. John has already told us in John three seventeen that God didn't send him into the world to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. At least seven times in this passage, Jesus points out that he is from the Father. He speaks on the authority of the Father. He's going to the Father. He does nothing on his own. His authority does not belong to any human origin. It belongs to his relationship with God the Father. He is announcing when I speak, I speak from God and I speak for God and I speak as God. He's saying this isn't about me. He's saying what I claim, I claim in agreement with the Father. I am. I am one with God, the great I am. In verse 24, he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. I am what? (laughs) Glad you asked. I am the light of the world. When I'm on the cross, I am that twinkling diamond. I am that city on the hill. I am the lighthouse on the hillside that overlooks life seas. I am the only light in darkness and all are drawn to me. And for those of you that thought this was a detour, the only way Jesus is actually the light of the world is accomplished because he is one with the Father. Jesus is the light of the world because he comes from the Father and he speaks for the Father and he's going to the Father and he is one with the Father. So these words of interactions with the Jew after announcing I'm the light of the world might look like he saw a squirrel, but in fact his testimony is just pointing out the fact that he is the way. Jesus is and always has been and always will be the light of the world. He's the light of the world because he was sent here by the Father and he's going to the Father and he and the Father are one. It all goes together. That's the big picture of this text. That's what Jesus wants us to see, and that's the truth he is illuminating. Last one, promise. So I'm 56. There are nights when I wake up, 
and eat a snack. So while I'm up, I might as well go to the bathroom. So some nights I just skip the snack. Are you with me? So I try to be stealthy, try not to laugh. Our nest is empty, so the lights are always turned off. There are those little LED lights from the chargers, but it's dark. I will often brave the darkness until I get into the bathroom and then I turn on the light because when I didn't, well, you know, I don't sit for that. So I'll close one eye and cover it with my hand when I turn on the light. Then when I start to turn off the light, I can remove my hand and put it on the other eye and navigate safely back in the dark to the bed. It works, kind of. But it's much easier just to function in the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It's the first part of verse 12, but make sure you catch the second part. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a life-changing verse if you see it for what it is, if you see him for who he is. It's saying that following Jesus is more than just tagging along behind him. It's more than telling him and hoping you don't get made. It means following him for who he is. And notice that when you follow him, you follow him as the light of life. He says, I am the light. Whoever follows me will have the light. You will have me, he says, as your light. If you follow me, you have me. I am yours. I am your shepherd and your sacrifice and your living water and your bread from heaven. Your God, he said, I am your light. Don't miss the last phrase in verse 12. You will have the light of life. So what's the connection between light and life? John 1, 4 gives us the answer. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The life gives light. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. The life Jesus has. The life he shares with those who follow him gives them light. That is, we are dead and blind to the light until the life of Jesus is imparted to us by God's spirit. Then we can see. Until you have the light, you're blind. The eyes of our heart are open. Our divine light streams into our living spirits and we are changed. Thus, we have the life of light. The life of light comes from this new spiritual eye-opening encounter with Jesus. And only from that. The light of life gives sight to the blind soul. Darkness can never overcome it. It's eternal life with eternal sight. And what about the phrase light of the world? We sing these great songs. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. We sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. These songs testify our need to be in the light. On Pender's Point at the West Grand Bahamas Island is a sad sight, a lighthouse. I'm not anti-lifehouse, but the lighthouse at Pender's Point has been decommissioned. It has everything it needs to be a lighthouse. It just doesn't work anymore. Somewhere around 280 B.C., the first lighthouse was built. 
Before that, there were just some fires built on the shore to kind of help you make it safely in. Lighthouses are important. We still use them today in our world filled with GPS and sonar and radar technology. For a lighthouse to really live up to its name, it needs to have light. Granted, during the day, just being there could be useful to a sailor if he's lost and needs to know where he is. But if you're going to be a lighthouse, you have to light up. Jesus is pretty straightforward with the religious in our text. He tells them, you're not going to make it. See, they were pretending to be lighthouses. They were pretending to show the way. The problem is they didn't have the light. They they thought they could be a lighthouse without the light. Back to verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. What does he mean by of the world? The whole world is not seeing his light. At least not yet. This was spoken by Jesus in 30-ish AD. The Great Commission has not yet been given. But the mission never changes. In fact, he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But the opposite is also true. If you don't follow him, you walk in darkness. And where is that darkness? It's in the world And it's in our heart. We naturally have a longing for dark. So being the light of the world doesn't mean removing darkness from all over the world as he walks through the world. Here's what I think it means. Jesus being the light of the world means that no, there is no other light but him. If there's going to be a light for the world, it's going to be Jesus. It's Jesus or it's darkness. There is no third choice. There is no other Light. It means, therefore, that all the world, that everyone in it, needs Jesus as their light. And it means that the world was made for this light. It's not a foreign light. It's not simply switching from CFL to LED light. This is the light of the owner of the world. And when this light comes, it illuminates our sin for what it is. And then we can see our sin the way God sees it and understand our need for the life and the light. The light can also show us the good in the world. When you see it, it shines with full and true beauty. This world was made to be illuminated by this light. This light outshines the sun. Finally, Jesus being the light of the world means that one day the world will be filled with his light. Once we are filled with his light. So in Matthew five fourteen, Jesus can announce, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I see this in nature. I have to get out of town to the blackness of the wilderness to see it best. And it's usually better when it's not a full moon. But... When I picture the night sky full of stars, I look up and think, yep, this was God's plan. Stars are fascinating to me. Our sun is a star. Stars are often just big balls of burning hydrogen, light years, trillions of miles from us. They're powerful lights. And when I see a sky full of them, filled with the power of the Holy, I see the us filled with the power of the Holy Spirit lighting up the world. Not hidden, just twinkling away. Twinkle is funny to me. You have a ball of burning hydrogen. Sure, it's a trillion miles away and it appears to twinkle. 
Reminds me of how we are supposed to be filled with the power of God and yet meek about it. Close with John 12, 36. Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When you believe in Jesus as your precious light, when you follow him as your truth and your wisdom and your way, your beauty, you have his life, you become a son of light. Now remember, he's speaking to the Jews. They were sons of Abraham. If we continue with chapter 8, we see a tremendous discussion here about this. But today I want you to hear Jesus saying that when you have the light of life, you become a part of of the family of God. You're grafted into the family of light. And this light will never go out. In that moment of death when the world thinks all goes black, that's not for believers, not for followers of Jesus. You simply pass right into the light of heaven. Not a big candelabra, but Jesus, the light of the world. So today I ask you, Are you like a decommissioned lighthouse? You have everything you need to light up your world. You're here today. You look like a lighthouse. But so did the religious in our text. You can be more like those in verse 30 and believe on Jesus today. You can move from darkness to light today. You can be a lighthouse that has light that makes a difference today. But remember, you're either in the dark or you're in the light. There is no third choice. Secondly, maybe today, some of you are trying to pull off spiritually what I try to pull off physically at night. You're in the light. You have the light. But you want to hold on to a little darkness. You don't want to lose your dark vision. you got your favorite sin. You don't want to let it go. You want to cover up your eye when you're in the light so when you get out of the light, you can move back to the dark. Say goodbye to the dark. Take both hands off and say, here I am to walk in the light. Three, maybe today you realize I've got it. I am in the light. I say to you, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Shine with the full power of the Holy Spirit in your world. Three choices. Continue to live in the dark. Choose light, but try to hold on to the dark, which never works or shine. We have an invitation. It's an opportunity for you to come forward and pray. It's an opportunity to say to everyone, this is what God has said to me today. I'll be glad to meet you here to pray or accept you if you're ready to move to the light today, to become a Christian, to become a follower of Christ, or even to say today, I want to join with these people. I want to be part of the lighthouse of First Baptist Pelham. I hope you'll come today. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to stand in this place and to open your word and to communicate truth. Father, I think today it's been very plain that we're either in the dark or we're in the light. Father, I pray today the power of your Holy Spirit will let us know where we are. Give us the courage to do something about that. Give us the courage today to say, I am going to be filled with light. Father, for my brothers and sisters who already have been filled with light, give them this courage to shine to be full of power of the Holy Spirit and shine in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.